Welcome to the Leadership Playbook, the show where successful leaders share what they learn to get to where they are. This podcast is an offshoot of the Albers Executive Speaker Series. And it's brought to you by RSMUS LLP, the nation's leading provider of assurance, tax, and consulting services focused on the middle market. I'm your host, Joe Phillips, the Dean of Seattle University's Albers School of Business and Economics. Our guest is Amy Hood, Executive Vice President and Chief Financial Officer for Microsoft. As Chief Financial Officer, Amy Hood is responsible for leading Microsoft's worldwide finance organization, including acquisitions, accounting, internal audit, and investor relations. Prior to her role, she was CFO of Microsoft's business division, responsible for finances of products like Microsoft Office 365, Office, and SharePoint. In the process, she helped lead the transition to the company's Office 365 service, and she was involved in the strategy and execution of the company's acquisitions of Skype and Yammer. Amy joined Microsoft in 2002 and previously worked at Goldman Sachs in investment banking and capital markets roles. She earned a bachelor's degree in economics from Duke University, I like that as an economist, and an MBA from Harvard University. Amy Hood, welcome. You were scheduled to come to campus first in May and then in October, but COVID-19 put the brakes on that. So we are pivoting to this podcast and appreciate your flexibility and willingness to participate with us today. It's great to be here and um, I'm glad we're doing it anyway. I said most of us have moved our lives to be more comfortable in this new environment. And I know you all have changed how you work and we certainly have changed how we work. And so it'll be fun. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about your journey from econ major to Goldman Sachs to CFO of Microsoft. I'll try to make it relatively short, even though it's been a long time. You know, when I was at university, I actually started out as a biology and chemistry major and had my goal set on going to medical school. So I did that up and through and including taking my entrance exams, then decided quite late that maybe it wasn't really going to work for me. So I spent my senior year trying to figure out, gosh, I need to graduate on time. I, I don't know if all of your students are the same way, but my parents certainly felt strongly about timeliness of completion of your education. And so I had a year left and needed to get myself in a position to have a paying job. And so when I looked at some of my interests, um, economics stood out. I loved statistics. I loved math. I loved the pursuit of logical thinking in a way. And in lots of ways, I still think the similarities in how I thought about chemistry or biology and the pursuit of that learning end-to-end system thinking, economics held much of the same passion for me. And so it ended up being a good fit. Although, you know, when you're quite early in career, at that point, I was trying to figure out I needed a, a job that paid money. And so then, like many people, a lot of the options were consulting or investment banking for economics degrees. And I did some interviews and got a job at Goldman Sachs through a program at the time that was trying to encourage more women to work in the field. And so it was great. I didn't have a lot of experience. So the ability to get that exposure through a group that at that point was called the Financial Women's Association of New York, which a lot of banks had come together to form. And I sort of credit it with having the opportunity to experience a role that I may not have had all these internships that others seem to have figured out 
in my peer group from Wharton and University of Chicago, where there had kind of been like a lifelong pursuit to be an investment banker. I didn't fit in that bucket, but moved to New York City, having never been there and had a great time. I learned tons, met some lifelong friends, which I still keep in contact with. And then somewhere along that way, I started working with tech companies, found it to be a good fit. I started my career in oil and gas and the energy sector. So the transition in terms of how I felt new ideas and the creativity and the energy, I just found it quite attractive. The culture and the openness to ideas that I felt it was almost independent of, you know, your background or your age. It felt like a time when you can make a difference, even though you were earlier in career. And so I sort of fell in love with working in the tech industry relatively early. And that led me to ultimately leave. And I looked at lots of tech options, ended up at Microsoft, which I'm super thankful for looking back. I never thought I would stay that long. It's like all these famous things like, oh, I'll go for a few years and then maybe that'll be a great learning opportunity and I'll find something else for me. I thought Microsoft back then, that was 2002, was too big. And so I think back now and in some ways, <laughs> it certainly was big compared to where I'd come from. But compared to now, it's actually quite small. But I found that one of the things I loved about it, I love Seattle. I love the energy of the city. I loved the environment of the city and I loved the culture there. And I moved through different jobs and ended up staying and still love it. Been in this job seven, almost seven years and still find that it's a job and a company where I can learn something new every day. And I, can't, I don't know that you can say that everywhere. So the journey is long with a couple stops, but I feel actually quite blessed to have found a place that works so well with, for me and lets me learn and grow and try new things and you know, I always think about that. It's like, if everyone could have that moment in their career where you find something that's that fit, it's always amazing what happens after that point. Thank you. Great journey. Great story. And you mentioned something about your current position, like it's you're learning something new every day. So that kind of leads to my next question. How have you seen the role of CFO evolve over the years? It seems like it used to be more focused on controls and processes and today, maybe CFOs seem to be more involved in the business and the strategy of the company. What's your thinking on that? It's a good observation and, and one that I think is probably right. I think when I, I look back, it's if the job at Microsoft were about controls and processes, they absolutely would not have picked me. As you heard in my background, I don't have any what I think you might call official <laughs> sanctioned skill set. I'm not an accountant. I'm not a tax lawyer. So some of the skills that a lot of people use and have were not things that I had in my toolbox, although I've learned a lot through day-to-day -day experiences. So for me, when I think about at a high level, what is the fundamental purpose of a C-suite leader? And it's to attract talent, right? is to pick the right people in the right roles, and it's to allocate capital. And so the allocation of capital, and you can call that people or money or assets or other things, has become a really strategic question. I think it always was. Like, where are you putting your most sacred, your most constrained thing, no matter what your business is? And where you're putting that effort, where you're putting those resources, is what your strategy is. I tell the people all the time I can take a spreadsheet. It's probably how my head works. And if I look where all the headcount at our company is allocated, you can get a good idea of what we believe 
as a company? Where do we believe opportunity exists? Where do we believe we're well positioned? Where do we believe we have a structural advantage? I love that about finance. In a way, it's become the language of strategy. It's, wait, it can be shown. And I feel that when I talk to other CFOs, they're having that same conversation. And now it's even extended to how can I inform that through data? How can I inform that through predictive patterns? How can I adopt new technologies to make that connection even more real for people to make the next best decision on the allocation of capital in a very, as you might imagine, at a very economic level, right? I think about from an economics perspective, maybe as opposed to an accounting unit. And I think most CFOs now would use more of that language in my experience. And it's not that I don't love Gap. I love Gap. Spend a lot of time on it, but it's a very different view of the future and strategy than, of course, maybe a reporting of the current. I'm loving all these plugs for econ, by the way. So another part of your journey that we might want to talk about is some of the challenges you faced in your career as you rose to higher and higher levels of responsibility. Some of the lessons you learned personally in that regard and, and how you applied those lessons to your own organization to make it more diverse and inclusive. That's a multi-layered question. Maybe let me start with what are some of the core lessons I look back on and realize they were good moments, right? Where you say, gosh, if I, if I keep doing it this way, this may not scale or work longer term for me. I think one of the first ones, I certainly think there's some aspects of gender that play into this, is feeling a great need to be right, to have the right answer before you spoke up. And maybe it was better just to listen and say nothing rather than say something and be wrong. And people talk about that as perfectionism. People talk about it for lots of things. But when I look back, I certainly struggled with this a lot in my career, is that, wait a second, it felt better to me to be risk averse fundamentally, because if I did the risk reward analysis, the middle felt safer than either end of the spectrum. If you think about a distribution curve, because of that, I actually think I slowed my own learning, right? I was like, wait, if I don't test my ideas, if I don't test my thesis, if I don't open myself up to those conversations, it's much harder to learn. And in some ways, when I went to business school, I, I chose a business school where you actually had to speak out loud, where I couldn't just get all the test questions right. It had to be a dialogue of testing ideas. And it was quite intentional for me. And, and I think if you went to Harvard Business School and asked my classmates, would they vote me most likely to be successful in that group? They would not have. I was still learning a lot, right? How do you present ideas? How do you get comfortable testing things? But it was a pivotal moment to realize that risk-taking and learning were fundamentally connected for me, especially as decisions got more and more complicated, as opposed to a math problem that I felt quite comfortable solving. And then the second one, and I think about just career and development, was I really loved picking jobs that everybody else liked because it felt like they must know more than I do. So if I wasn't sure or if I, I didn't trust my own judgment a lot, I'm really thankful for my time at Goldman Sachs, but I'm, I'm not sure when I picked roles there, I was like, wow, I really love that idea. It was more, wait, everybody else seems to think this is a good job to learn. I don't have a strong opinion. I should just do that. And then that must be the right thing for me. In some ways, there's a lot of depth in that because if you reflect and I look back, 
it's like, wait, maybe I'm still trying to fit into a place that I'm not quite confident I'm fitting into. <laughs> I didn't have enough confidence to really lean in and say, no, my passion is here. My own unique view is that I love this thing and having the confidence to pick that, even if it was a little maybe atypical for a journey. And again, those are never poor decisions. I look back, it's like, it's not like any of these things were, oh gosh, Amy, she's not a smart person or not thoughtful. But I think it was fundamentally about how I viewed risk and success. And I look back and I, when I get asked about career and choices and how to think about those things, I'm far more comfortable now telling people that careers aren't quite as linear as I think maybe I had interpreted them to be, which every step was a step forward on a well-planned journey up and to the right. And now I look and say, I think some of the journeys, especially if they're your own, are about taking jobs, learning what's not right, is just as valuable as picking one that's right. And it may be that your journey looks more like a bouncy path that eventually ends up maybe in a place you didn't think was possible or maybe that you didn't expect. And that comfort level with yourself and your own choices, learning confidence and testing your ideas is a thing that took me much longer. And I see it already. And some of our younger employees or who are earlier in career, they're far more likely to test their ideas than I was. And I, I find it fascinating. I'm like, oh my gosh, I wish I'd had that. I would have tuned my judgment earlier. So then when you talk about what does that mean about inclusion or diversity, it's that in the way, the safer the environment you build, the more likely people are to share their ideas, the more likely they are to test, the more likely they are to choose and ask questions about a different path, the more likely they are to be open to even calibrating their ideas with peers, that lack of judgment. And so we, I don't want to dismiss, we spend a lot of time on diversity. We spend even more on inclusion. And the behaviors let people who are quite different all share those ideas, get feedback on those ideas so that we can all be better, I think has been probably one of the things I spend more time on now. And you're probably right. Some of the things that I experienced in my career certainly shaped that as I look forward. Well, let's talk about another dimension of that, and that is race, right? Racial injustice is a big issue in the U.S. right now in the wake of Black Lives Matter. The tech sector has long been criticized for a lack of racial diversity. How are you at Microsoft trying to address this? That's a timely question for sure. And I think this is one that the most important thing I think that we could all say is the issue is not new. And you sort of referenced that in your question. I, while the tech sector has a lot of room for improvement, frankly, every sector in every business, in every industry, for a profit or nonprofit has work to do on this topic. So at Microsoft, we've spent a good amount of time aligning as a senior leadership team on our response to racial injustice. We've set out three very clear pillars with deliverables. You know, as you might imagine, as an operations person at heart, I believe if you measure your progress and you hold yourself accountable transparently to that progress, you actually do a better job of achieving it. Our employees have been very transparent about their belief in that no different than we think about quarterly results. You have to set the benchmark and work every quarter toward it and tell your team if you've made it or not. And so we're applying that to three pillars inside the company. One is how our own employees. The second is our partners and broad supplier community and how can we change and be a better example. And then, of course, finally, is the communities in which we live and work. And I'm, I'm quite proud of the work. At the same time, <laughs> said we're a couple quarters into the new plan and it's a multi-year commitment, but it's important work. As I remind people, this company, when it applies itself to very hard problems, does very well. 
And having this be an important topic for us is is critical. But I will say one of the the harder things is, you know, this has not been a topic that's been openly discussed in the workplace, (laughs) right? When you think about the things we've talked about, about diversity and inclusion, we're pretty good at talking about those things. Then you get comfortable about gender. Then you may get comfortable about sexual orientation. Then we're still the harder conversation to start is race. And I think a lot of the training that we're investing in for our employees is certainly helping. The most important thing, as we've said, is to have our senior leaders be willing to talk about it. If you set a good example, we we have a frame and great managers really do a few things. And modeling is one of the most important things you do, is modeling behavior you want to see in the organization. And so I think the more we do better modeling as a team, we will make more progress here. But it's for sure. There's progress to be made everywhere, certainly, and, and in, including the tech sector. Great. Thank you. So it's seven months and counting of working at home for many people, including yourself and me. How do you think COVID is going to end up impacting the day-to-day operations of Microsoft over the long run? And do you see anything different as part of the new normal for the company? Well, there's certainly a book that will be written, and we're not yet sure what chapter we're writing of how and what a new normal looks like. As a global company, what's quite interesting is how different our employee experience is right now around the world. If you happen to work in many of our offices in China or Korea, Taiwan, you would be back in the office generally. Attendance looks far more similar than dissimilar to prior to the pandemic. You would, of course, have gotten more comfortable to certain norms around the office behaviorally temperatures, sign-ins, masks on occasion, but it feels for many people like, oh, this is this feels like it did before. And a lot of that, as many people are likely aware, average home size, square feet, is actually quite small in much of that region. So the environment where everyone was at home together, sharing space and a sharing work environment, was actually quite different than much of the United States, which many of us are familiar with in terms of space. So there's different pressures and different experiences. I think one of the biggest things that will come from this is we absolutely have a very deep appreciation now of our global community and its impact on everything we do. We have a supply chain for devices that, like many other companies in the United States, starts in China for the devices you and I buy either online or in a store one of these days, there's no ability for something in a pandemic to not impact that workflow. So I think everybody, a good outcome of this will be very global thinking around risk mitigation, if you're in this type of business, around how you think about it. For employees, what's really different is we've actually always had a lot of remote employees. Remote meaning two things. Either they work in a different office together, or they've actually just worked from their home office before. Lots of salespeople have always worked in that environment. They've not been bound to an office building. One of the complaints that everybody always had in that environment was you felt very only. So, gosh, there'd be a meeting. They'd forget to dial in so that you could dial in and hear context. And those behaviors were deeply embedded, right? If you weren't in the room, you didn't share the knowledge. And while it felt great to be one of the people in the room, it increasingly felt worse and worse to be one of the people who was trying to make it work, working in a different location than the majority of the team. This has actually been a great equalizer of experience. So these seven months where we're all remote, the behavior that you log into a meeting, no matter if you, by the way, happen to be in person, 
let's say we have some teammates, which we do in finance in China, you may dial into a meeting and, and they would actually be together. But the rest of us would certainly be in individual dialing rooms. Behaviors are quite different. Materials are set in person. I laugh. We've never been so timely as a company ever. Meetings generally start remarkably close to on time and end remarkably close to on time. And I think in some ways that behavior will be, wait a second, are we more willing to think through how a great team, how do you define a great team? Is it a great team meeting behavior? Is it you always dial in? Even when you're back in the office, every team's, every event is remote just because it works better. Do we actually think about meeting rooms being developed differently? Do you think about design principles of real estate? I think that absolutely is going to happen. Would you have more meeting spaces, less assigned offices, more generalized space usage? These are all things we're thinking about. Some of it's cultural, some of it's physical space, some of it's the tools you need to be impactful. We're still studying productivity. You know, I think by all measures, productivity is actually pretty good, but it's not consistent. So are there things that we actually haven't translated yet into the virtual world? You know, for us, it may be reasonably easy to buy stuff online that we used to go to the store to do or pick up curbside. But there are lots of things where maybe that experience isn't working <laughs> as effectively. People often talk about creative processes where we might co-author or co-edit. Is it as effective when everyone's typing and you're not listening? So I think we're working through better behaviors to, to get good at that. But I think this is a topic where we're very early in the process. We had all of our interns, which obviously applied, uh, were remote this year. There were great things about that. There were less good things about it. You know, personal connections mean a lot in terms of retention. And so I think we're still trying to figure out how you replace some of those things. Compliance is another interesting topic. There's a lot of behavioral things that say, if you feel like you're in a group, you norm to the behaviors of a group. And so if you're by yourself, does compliance change? Does your likelihood of seeing something and reporting something, building trust change? And I don't know, these will be very interesting topics over the coming bit. But I certainly think all employers are trying to figure out how to be more flexible because if we've learned anything in this time, this is hard for people. People are tired and it isn't that they don't like some of the flexibility they've gotten, but even with flexibility, balancing home commitments and work commitments and school commitments and every other commitment is certainly been draining. And I think most employers, I think, are appropriately spending a lot of time talking about that. So you are well known for spending a lot of time thinking about company culture and developing your people. This is a two-part question. One is, okay, why is that so important? And why do you spend so much time thinking about it? But the second part is, how do you keep the culture going in a COVID environment? Because it seems as we go on and on and on, it becomes more and more difficult to keep that culture going. We start with the first part of that, as you said. Why do I think people development, which is ultimately, in my opinion, how you build culture, why does it matter so much? And for me, in some ways, our finance team is at its very best when you both have a depth of understanding of the business, but also a lot of understanding of the system. And what I mean by the system is how things actually work across a very interconnected company. And one of the things I had felt, although I wasn't as sure of it till I was in the seat, was that empathy. <laughs> 
for another person's role and challenges would build better outcomes. So we had a lot of people who had stayed in the same roles for a very long time. At a company this big, we often said, oh, that was good because you had a depth of experience. One of the downsides of that was you also didn't learn or appreciate the complexity of other people's jobs. And so you tended, not everybody, you tended to locally optimize as opposed to pick global maximas, not because you didn't intend to pick a global maxima, because you had no ability to understand where a global maxima would exist because you didn't have appreciation for other parts of the system. And so when I talked about people development, I was like, ah, the issue isn't that they aren't willing to take a new job. It's that we haven't, as a team, said why that's so critical to making great leaders is that if you have an understanding of a system, if you build empathy for all the components of the system, if you understand the levers of any connected system, then your ability to solve for the company, to solve for the global maxima, it was amazing how much better it got. Teams shared more information. They were more open about challenges. And so all of a sudden, teams were solving this much bigger problem set without the senior person and whatever pyramid shape you're in. If fewer things go to the top of the pyramid, you work faster. And so the challenge we have is that if it didn't go to the top of a pyramid shape of people in reporting hierarchy until it got solved system-wide, it had to go to the top. Now, with all of these people who have shared experience and shared jobs, they can solve these problems way before very senior people get involved. And it's empowering. All of a sudden, they feel like they own outcome. Everybody gets to be a leader. Everybody can set examples. Everyone can own policy decisions. And you end up with a lot of executive maturity because of that. I look at my team, and I'm just really proud of them. I mean, our, our 40 most senior leaders in finance, first and foremost, are a very diverse group. And I mean that in all aspects of diversity. We used to have, in that 40, we said that 35 of them were subject matter expert jobs when I took the job seven years ago. Now we're down to four that we believe can't be done by just a thoughtful, global system thinker. And so I've sort of solved for maybe what you might call softer skills of leadership and people development and problem solving and executive maturity and really de-emphasize subject matter depth and it's built, in our instance, a far more flexible organization who's far more collaborative and open. And it's made a huge difference culturally for us as a team. And I would also say it's benefited us on all the things that, at least in public company situation, the audit committee cares about. Risk occur when information isn't shared holistically. And so now, if you think about a trusted environment of all senior leaders, where it's about problem solving and celebration of that, bad news travels very quickly and problem solving happens very quickly. And it's been a huge benefit, a huge benefit. So it's probably is my passion around doing the right thing for people. Then of course, if people see that as career opportunity, they stay, they're learning, they grow, they get invested in, they become pretty global leaders. Although I get disappointed on occasion, a lot of our senior people get asked to go work in other areas of the company, which is a great thing for them. They should do it. But I think it's more just because they've invested in being end-to-end -end, end -end people leaders. And hopefully at some point when I don't have this job anymore, that'll be one of the things people realize is that, wow, we have the opportunity, no matter what role we started in, 
to grow through this organization with different paths if we learn the core skills and capabilities of leadership. Like what you hear so far? Make sure you never miss a show by clicking on the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Now back to the show. So let's talk about your leadership. What's your philosophy, approach to leadership? How do you want other people to describe you as a leader? And where does that all come from? Oh, goodness. Maybe I'll start by thinking how other people, it's probably more authentic if I think about what other people would say. I think my leadership style, people firstly probably say it's authentic. It's also probably direct and likely that I view myself as a model and a coach first and foremost. And when I think about those things, it probably is fairly accurate. I've increasingly seen my position as very little about finance and far more about building a team. And so the more I have to be involved in something, usually it's a sign that I have a different issue. In fact, if somebody asked me today, you know, how much of my time do I spend on quote unquote running finance versus building the finance organization early in my career, I spent most of my time running the rhythm of the business, worrying about revenue or cost and all the normal things. Now I spend the vast majority of my time building the team, structuring the team, building workflows. And that's probably a testament to many things about how you scale as a human. And so I don't know that I have a vision. I always had a goal as opposed to a vision, which was the goal I had was to build a world-class finance organization, but more importantly, to build a world-class people organization. And so I feel like we've done that because I have world-class people with great leadership skills. And I do believe we do have a world-class finance organization that I'm very proud of. So maybe people first, if I had to really get to it after seven years of a career. So maybe part of that was a pretty big transformation to digital in the finance sector, finance part of the company. So just curious if you can talk about things like artificial intelligence, machine learning, blockchain, how that has impacted your division and, and how you've been focusing on that. Yeah, this is, it's a good one. And maybe I'll start with an earlier statement that I think informs how I think about new technology. When I got the job and we were working a lot at Microsoft on the Microsoft cloud and pushing forward, I asked infamously at a meeting, we need to go hire some at scale cloud finance experts. And somebody said, where would we find them? We have one of the biggest businesses in the world. And in that moment, you realize the problem actually is different than you thought it was. It's that you have to build it from within and build the capabilities. And you probably had the right people. It was just getting maybe a new set of skills and helping to teach because frankly, there were no better people. We had them. We had the people. And I would say that has applied to almost all of these technical moments too, which is, I do laugh a little bit, people are like, oh, have you adopted this latest technology? And I always try to correct it in the moment and say, Let's start by what business problem we believe we have. Then let's discuss what steps and processes should change that can be enabled by technology. And this is a place where we've been, and I think are probably super fortunate because a lot of this technology, we have the world's experts inside our walls, but we have not gone outside really to hire new finance people. 
Finance people are remarkably resilient people, at least in Microsoft. Willingness to adopt new technology, willingness to think about a problem differently has been quite high. And so you could have picked any of these things. Machine learning, we apply that to forecasting. It's made us far more accurate. But even more importantly, all of our people, just like your students, who didn't want to be doing manual data entry of a forecast every week, they wanted to be talking about how to grow the business faster. You can actually remove all that work and free them to spend time on growth. And this has been, I think, one of the ways you think about, okay, what are we trying to achieve? I'm trying to achieve higher growth, or I'm trying to achieve lower cost per X. And if you think about that, then you say the tech that lets us do that, then you say, what does that free our people to do? That process has been quite empowering, and it makes the tech far less intimidating. I tell people, I don't need you to write the code often. I just need you to understand the process and how it needs to be addressed. And it's actually really impressed with the team in general. They they now do this on their own. Uh, you know, whether it's any type of robotics or automation, whether it's machine learning, whether it's adopting blockchain from our treasury team, uh, whether it's working on even reinforcement learning and credit approvals. There's the ability for each of these things, instead of thinking about it as, oh, it's intimidating or it could change what I do, people have increasingly thought of it as it leads to better outcomes for the things I'm responsible for. And I think that's how we've probably addressed it. But I will say, I've had to get far more comfortable with technology. For me, it maybe came more naturally because I work here. But For a lot of people, I think they're far more concerned about understanding the tech than understanding the problem. I would just coach people to understand the problem and then get comfortable enough with the tech. But there's tons of people who can fix the tech problem. And those people don't understand the problem. It takes two, as I remind people. It takes an expert on the system and the process, and it takes an expert in tech. The power comes when they work together respectfully on the problem set. So it's actually really fun. It's one of the best parts of my job, I think. But it's certainly back to learning new things every day. I always say you can put it next to trade policy and geopolitics and tax and trade. It's There's ample things to learn new every day, especially these days, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. So if you were speaking on campus, you know, most of the people in the audience would be students, right? And you wouldn't be getting questions from the dean, you'd get questions from the students. And so I'm going to be remiss if I don't ask you this next question, right? Which is, what advice do you have for uh, recent college graduates or soon to graduate students, particularly in this pandemic period? And in particular, what do you know now that you wish you knew when you graduated from Duke? Enjoy the journey. I think some days I was so focused on the destination, I forgot to just enjoy my day to day. And I mean that in every facet of my life. Enjoy the friends I had, enjoy the family I had, enjoy the work colleagues, enjoy the feeling and the satisfaction of working on hard things that matter to the world. Enjoy the small things and the large things. And I think in some ways, and I do talk to our recent graduates who joined the company. I'm really glad I wasn't trying to live an Instagram perfect life. Many of my best moments would not have looked great on Instagram. And the pressure that they must feel in that environment is almost too much for me to even contemplate. And I hope that within that journey, they find joy in being true to their beliefs, to what they care about, to what they have faith in, what they have a passion for. And through that journey, I I hope they find like a true sense of joy that may come with work. (laughs) It may not be immediate, 
but it does come right over time. And I think about it often is that I sometimes look back and, and look in their faces and think, I just wish I could take the pressure off of you that you can watch. You can watch them have it in a new job and you can't ever, but I can remind people, I just don't remember the bad days the same way. In the moment they feel awful. Oh, I still remember putting the wrong client name on some presentation when at my first job or making a math error. You know, I remember they happened and in the moment they felt fatal, like I would never have a job again. But looking back, it's those moments when like your friends mattered, your family mattered, your internal sense of confidence mattered, but also they're very small. Oh, those things are very small. And may they forever remember how small they are. You know, for all of us that are super lucky, I said to people, you know, I get to be on your podcast because I have one of the most privileged life of all time, right? Like that's why you get, I get to be here. I get a ton of help, my husband, my parents, <laughs> my friends, and it lets me do this job. And so maybe the other advice I would give is to be thankful, be thankful for all the people that help you along the way in, in ways small and quite large. And I think I'm far more thankful than I was, maybe not because of COVID, maybe just because with time, you look back quite fondly on it. So, you know, maybe that's what I hope for them. And I can guarantee that some of them will pick careers they love from the beginning. Some of them maybe find it later in life. I will only say at age 30, I was unemployed <laughs> for nine months and I turned out okay. So they should remember that not all journeys are the same. It's always exciting to think that you get to start again, you know, when you're 22. But it feels pretty good to not be 22, too, honestly, some days. So if I recall 22 with clarity, it was easy and hard at the same time. Thanks for that. Great advice. And I also am so glad Instagram did not exist when I was in my 20s. I can agree with you on that. A lot of the things that people have to do is, you know, balance priorities, juggle things in the air and figure out how to get all these things done. What are your uh, tips for prioritizing things and keeping things going? I have two, I think, super practical things that I always remind people. Number one, if you do not set parameters, no one will for you. So you just got to decide what they are. And by the way, you can't judge anybody else's. Whatever they are, they are yours. I think this is incredibly both empowering and then is necessary for the next piece of advice, which is you have to really be honest with yourself on what are the things only you can get done, like only you. And in that question is a lot of ego reflection. Is it that you wanted to be in that meeting? Did you want to be there? Did you want this? Did, or do you need to? Like, are you the only person who can get that thing done? And when I see that I'm the only person, not because of ego, but because of the topic or the complexity, I prioritize that because people then are relying on me, the person and the role to get that done because no one else can. And when I did that and I do it in my calendar, I literally look through the calendar every week on Sunday and have I put myself in a spot where there's somebody else who can do this better. And then I move things to other people, right? It's what for me may be an ego thing for somebody else is a development opportunity to lead, test their own skills. And you can do this at every level. It's a test. It doesn't matter where you are in your career. But those are two things on prioritizing my time. And you can apply that, by the way, at home <laughs> just as easily as you can 
at work. And it's maybe, for me at least, more sobering when it's applied at home in terms of where do you make that a priority. Great. Thank you for that advice. Switching gears a little bit, you know, what do you see as the biggest challenge business leaders are facing today? How would you answer that one? Oh, that's complicated. Let's for a second put aside a global recession and a pandemic. It's almost impossible to say that. But for a second, let's put aside a global pandemic and a global recession. Then you say what is complicated. And I think it's in many ways the different things business leaders are expected to have an opinion on and a role in. And it feels quite different than it did 25 years ago. There's lots of reasons for that. Social media, the number of the 24-hour press cycle, right? The There's a lot of whys that is. But if you looked at, for example, Twitter and saw CEOs and followed them all, you'd notice lots of their commentary is not about their business results in that moment. It's on broader issues and the role that plays to their employees, the role it plays to all stakeholders, shareholders, investors, board members, and everybody. And I do think those issues have gotten more complicated. And it means that business leaders, I think, need to have a truly global perspective, a lot more empathy, and a lot more awareness on a broad range of topics that are far beyond product roadmap. And it's certainly harder. I think for larger global companies, it's probably even more complicated. But I think in in lots of ways, that's when you realize what it means to be a leader. A business leader is a pretty broad leader these days, maybe broader than any of us thought when we took the job is maybe another way of saying it. And so how do you approach that for me is, you know, we stay very focused. We have company values and we, we really do try to live them every day. People sometimes ask, how seriously do you take them? And the answer is very it guides almost all principles we set. And it's interesting to think about it that way. Principles have always mattered. Values have always mattered. Living them has mattered more than saying them. The consistency in which you apply them matters more than ever. And it's certainly a a challenge, but one that I think is important for leaders to step up to. So you mentioned earlier, you're not going to be CFO forever. So what do you want your legacy to be? Have you thought about that? I have. I tell my team, it's that My legacy will be the team I leave behind. It won't be the stock price. It won't be a reinvention of a company. It won't be any of the things that I'm sure people will write books about. It'll be about, did I leave a team stronger than I found it? And if I did, that's plenty of legacy for me. (laughs) Built a culture that's inclusive. Built a team that's more reflective of the global society in which we live. Build a team that lets people achieve their career objectives in a way that continues to remove bias from a system And if I leave it in that state, it'll be in far better hands, right? And so your legacy really is only about that for me at work. And I suspect, you know, they always say nobody remembers anything other than how you make them feel at some level. And so I think about that often. And so I hope people will say I made them feel hopeful and I made them feel more confident in themselves. And so if I can do that, then they won't miss me that much at some point, which will be great. You know, at some level, I always think about it. You want to build an org that won't miss you. And so I I very much intend on doing that. Great. So unfortunately, we've reached the end of our time with Amy Hood, CFO of Microsoft. Amy, I really want to thank you for joining us on this podcast. It's been great. You've made some terrific comments for us to share with our students and our Albers community. So appreciate you taking the time to do this. Well, thank you so much for having me. I love being able to talk to neighbors. 
since I'm a fellow Seattleite and you all play such an important role in this community. And so I'm thankful for the role uh, you all play and have played for a long time here. So happy to be a small part of the experience that you're providing for students and, and your alumni. Thank right. you so much. You've been listening to the Leadership Playbook, the podcast edition of the Albers Executive Speaker Series at Seattle University. If you enjoyed what you heard today, consider telling a friend and give us a good rating on iTunes. You can subscribe to our show for free on your favorite podcast app or find us online at leadershipplaybook.org. Find out who our next guests are by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I'm Joe Phillips, the Dean of the Albers School of Business and Economics. Thanks for listening.